Welcome to Flip the Script, your go-to podcast about health disparities. My name is Max. My guest today is Miss Harriet Washington. She is the author of Medical Apartheid and Infectious Madness and many other books. I'll let her tell us a little bit more about herself. Hi, my name is Harriet Washington, and Max, thank you so much for inviting me to uh, join your podcast. I'm a writer, and I've been trained in medical ethics, and I write extensively about medicine, chiefly about um, research protocols and how they've changed and been influenced by history, and often about troubled protocols. But I also write about things like the um, role of infection and mental illness and other things that catch my fancy. That's fantastic. So it's been about... 11 years since you've published Medical Apartheid, uh, which was sort of focused on the tragedy of medical experimentation on African Americans throughout colonial times and up to the time at which you are writing the book. Um, So, you know, what has been the evolution of both the reception of the book and how how do you feel that your book has changed the ways in which um, medical experimentation and medical research has been done? Well, I've been very, very pleased and heartened by the warm reception the book um, has um, profited from. And I think that part of it I can't take credit for. Part of it is that people were simply ready to understand and appreciate and explore this history. Um, The awareness of health inequities and health disparities is something that's been hard won. It's taken a while for us to get there to the point where we're actually evaluating them systemically. And I think that luckily my book was published at about a time when people were receptive to it. So um, I've spoken at at least a hundred schools of medicine and medical ethics institutions and other groups, and talking to a great, talk to a great deal of um, medical educators who want to know more about my history, about the book's history, and I'm very gratified too that the book seems to have influenced the work of other um, scholars who have written about things I touched upon in the book. For example, the history of Otabenga, who was clapped into a zoo in the Bronx, and the. Um, plight of the newly freed slaves, the freedmen, during and after the Civil War, which became the book of an excellent book by Jim Downs, as well as the history of how psychoses like schizophrenia were racialized and feminized. Uh, That's work done by Jonathan Metzl. So um, I'm very pleased with reception and what I think the book has done in in helping generate a new branch of scholarship. Thank you. Um, And from the perspective of medical education and the role of physicians overall, what is the reception that you've gotten, you know, beyond obviously being invited to speak at medical schools? How are audiences um, responding to the knowledge that you have, you've been providing? Many, many of the audiences, in fact, all the audiences I speak to, uh, speak of being um, inspired and learning a great deal about the subject and appreciate the work. And of course, any writer, that's music to any writer's ears, right? They all, we all wanted to hear that. So I've been very happy about that, the fact that people were ready for this. They approve of the fact this work has been written and want to know more. And many people in the medical profession are keenly interested in how they can ameliorate their own practice, how they can um, better treat patients and avoid some of the pitfalls detailed in the book. Because the truth is that um, a lot of the problems I detail have been very persistent problems when it comes to the treatment of African Americans. And uh, there's a readiness that I find very gratifying. And so while you were writing the book, I'm wondering 
what was the reception from your colleagues on the history side of things, but also, you know, any hurdles that you may have faced while you were writing the book? Right. It got a mixed reception from historians. Um, I'm gratified to say that the historians um, that I am most um, inspired by and impressed by, um, like the reviewers of the Oxford Journal of Social History, um, praised the book, um, fulsome praise, and I was really happy about that. But there's a contingent of medical historians who I think were not entirely happy with the book. They weren't entirely happy with this history being delved into and being exposed. And frankly, the fact that no book had been written on the subject beforehand and it had not gotten um, much treatment at all, the subject, uh, tells me that there had been some animus um, against treating the subject. I think there's a great deal of discomfort, um, including among some historians. But again, I'm gratified that uh, the historians um, that I am most impressed by and I've learned the most from have been very supportive of it and think that it did a very good job of exposing what happened. Gotcha. Why don't you tell me some anecdotes um, from the book and also some anecdotes that you have come across but then didn't put in the book? Anecdotes from the book. Oh, there's so many. I hardly know where to start. Um, I would say one really interesting anecdote involves Fannie Lou Hamer. As a child growing up in the 60s and very much aware of the civil rights movement, I knew of Fannie Hamer as a powerful, not only a powerful political force, but a powerful symbol of the civil rights movement, right? And... Um, I remember idly having wondered, like I think a lot of people did, you know, where did she get her fire? I mean, the she was born in Mississippi on a plantation in the 1960s, but under conditions that could have happened in the 1860s. You know, she was um, sharecropper. Her family, you know, worked long and hard picking cotton for like a dollar for a hundred pounds. It was incredible. Mm -hmm. And um, how did this person turn into a powerful civil rights figure? And I was completely bowled over to read that she was galvanized in part by her experience having undergone a Mississippi appendectomy. Mm. Mississippi appendectomy is a surreptitious um, sterilization that was conducted unmasked on black women who would go to the doctor and be told they needed some kind of minor surgery, but while they were under, the doctor would instead remove their uterus, rendering them sterile. And this was done... Um, and mass, as I said, it was a part of practice that was tacit, accepted. And the rationale was that as African Americans, these were eugenic failures, women who should not reproduce, whose children would be a burden to them. And it was considered appropriate and acceptable to not even tell them they were mm -hmm. undergoing the surgery and to falsify medical records in many I I was shocked to learn of this. I was shocked to learn it happened to her. And I was doubly shocked for to read of her saying this experience had been the one to galvanize her because she had wanted to have children. And she found out secondhand that she'd been sterilized against her will. And um, I thought, how many women did this happen to? And what a testament to her will that instead of um, making her a recluse or an embittered person or insane and, and it instead transformed her into this metamorphosis where she became a powerful civil rights icon. So that was a very um, pivotal 
experience learning about her. And as I wrote about the um, eugenic control on the reproduction of African-American women, she was the obvious choice to begin the chapter. So she's important. I think that um, another, one other anecdote um, that I find really, really important because it involved the government is that during enslavement, I had been surprised to learn that um, about 20 years before the Civil War, 20, 25 years, enslavement was actually on um, life support. You know, many Southern states were considering ending enslavement. And I had not known that. I certainly hadn't learned that, you know, in history. And the more I read about that, uh, the more galvanized I was to find out. For example, in Virginia, they came within eight votes of ending enslavement. But do you know what kept enslavement alive? The census. Mm. John C. Calhoun, Secretary of State, had also been a medical student. And he was a rabid uh, racist and... Um, you know, he was very much an advocate of keeping black people enslaved, keeping them in their place. And when he put, was put in charge of the census, he appointed, he appointed a friend of his to conduct it. And when the results were tallied, they found that black people who had been enslaved enjoyed much better mental health than black people who had been freed. In fact, a freed black person was 11 times more likely to be mentally ill than an um, enslaved black person. And so Calhoun said, there you have it. There is some black and white um, slavery, which up to then had been promulgated as necessary for the South and for the American economy. Now the argument was that slavery That's is good. necessary for slaves. They can't survive without white people to care for them and watch out for them. They don't have adult judgment, right? So um, that was the message, and unfortunately, it was not countered well by any of the politicians who and Northerners who were against enslavement. It became part of the canon. 20 and 30 years later, I'm reading reports in psychological journal, journals saying, after all, it's been demonstrated that enslavement is necessary for the health of African-Americans. You know who finally refuted this? James McCoon Smith. James McCoon Smith was the first African-American to earn an MD, but he didn't do it here. He wasn't accepted by uh, medical schools in the U.S. because of an, a naked racial bar. And so he went to Glasgow, Scotland. He earned his degree at Glasgow earned a degree in stat as well, and he also was a valedictorian, came back to the United States and read and wrote a refutation of the census. It's important to realize that having the U.S. Census Department offer, you know, numbers, you know, documenting the tendency of black people who were freed toward insanity was much more powerful than having rabid racists, you know, mm -hmm. um, propose it. And McCoon Smith understood the political reality, but he also understood the numbers. And he very effectively showed that this had been falsified. For example, in Worcester, Massachusetts, um, they had noted that there were 133 insane black people kept in the institution. McCoon Smith found that, no, these were 133 white people who were insane, for example. It was blatant falsification done under the imprimis of the U.S. Census Department. And that's really important because in our, just in the last couple of decades, we've seen the same kind of thing happen. When the um, United States um, did a document on healthcare disparities, seeking to quantify them, the Bush administration emerged with a document that it had changed. It received the document, then it changed it to reflect that their healthcare inequities didn't exist in this country. <laughs> and um, so when this happened, the Black Caucus, the Hispanic Caucus, 
both criticized him, found the initial experts, and were able to demonstrate that the numbers had been changed by the government. And I thought immediately of the census of 1840, which had done the same thing. So that was the first time I realized that contrary to what a lot of um, uh, medical professionals seem to think, the government could be a very powerful agent in terms of um, using public health data to, um, I know, to demonize groups of people. And that was like a revelation for me, I think, for a lot of other people, too, that um, this could be done in this way under the guise of public health data. So those are a couple that come to mind immediately. Yeah, this kind of goes to show how much, you know, if we don't learn the history and aren't aware of it, it's deemed to repeat itself, just thinking about the episode like with Hegel the Bush said, right? yes. Yeah. Thinking about the episode with the Bush administration and what you just described with the, you know, the quote unquote experiment with John C. Calhoun, uh, and so that parallel leads me to ask you the question: You know, what issues do you feel you did not address in medical apartheid and have come up since, um, and sort of, you know, over the past ten years? What do you feel have been sort of the hot points in terms of both medical experimentation and the use of medical research in a nefarious fashion? Well, there are a few things I didn't address in medical apartheid. One I didn't address because there was really no need to. Mm -hmm. I thought about a chapter on intelligence. I actually began writing it because of the um, belief in innate lower intelligence from African Americans has been a very stubborn, persistent belief. Mm -hmm. But I realized that there are several books that have been um, very uh, credibly have already done that. Um, I think that there's a book entitled Even the Rat Was White. <laughs> you know, a historical view of psychology, but it focuses on African American psychologists mm -hmm. by Robert V. Guthrie. Wonderful book. I highly recommend it. So, of course, is Stephen Jay Gould's book, The Mismeasure of Man. He goes into a great deal of detail to show how past scientists invested a lot of effort and a lot of fictional creativity in devising rigged measurements that purported to support claims of African-American uh, inferiority. inferiority. Now, the problem is that the people are impressed by numbers. You know, you see these spidery columns of numbers, these graphs, all this data. Think of the bell curve, right? And <laughs> people are impressed by that, but they don't understand it necessarily. I mean, it may persuade you even if you don't understand the math. And that's what these scientists of the 18th century understood, too. So um, Stephen Jay Gould goes to the trouble of dissecting them all and showing how they um, intentionally, very often, and sometimes unintentionally, would rig their data, would rig their findings. And so having copious numbers means nothing very often, unless you, if you lack the intellectual rigor um, that, to support your arguments. And that's, that's an important lesson for us, I think. So I didn't include the um, article on intellectual inferiority. And then I also had written, I actually wrote a chapter on African-American researchers. But what I discovered after doing this quite exhaustive chapter was that even though I would have liked to include it because the African-American researcher is the invisible man of American medicine, and African-Americans have contributed very, very important things from smallpox diphtheria. Charles um, Drew ch and storage of blood. Right, and people know about that, but they don't know about Levi Watkins necessarily. They don't know about um, Solomon Carter Fuller, Fuller, who went to Munich and helped characterize Alzheimer's disease, you know. But the problem with that was I was focusing on troubled 
medical research. And African-American researchers did not um, engage in much troubled research. The reason, interestingly, I think, being that they weren't part of the medical fraternity. They weren't accepted. Um, during a lot of our, our um, country's medical history, African-Americans couldn't even get residencies, much less research training. So they did research on their own, and not being um, privy to the networks, they didn't have access to patients uh, who were abused. So they tended not to be part of troubled research. Um, perhaps they were ethically pure and they never would have done it, but the truth is they never had the opportunity. Mm -hmm. So I didn't use that chapter. Then there are things I didn't address because they actually were not problems when I wrote the book. There are a, lot of, there are a slew of new problems that have um, either burgeoned or appeared since I wrote the book. And among them are commodification issues in medicine that have, have led to economic policies that encourage abuses. They encourage abuses of people in the developing world, for example. And um, they encourage the erosion of informed consent um, by researchers who are focused on maximizing the value of patents um, to the detriment of things that might slow down research or make research more expensive, like going to the trouble of asking people's permission. Thanks to a law that was passed in 1996, an amendment to the Code of Federal Regulations, if you're a trauma victim, you can be involved in medical research without anyone asking you mm. or even informing you. A very chilling, a very fateful step, in my opinion, that a lot of people, experts seem to have accepted for, for reasons that is. bewilder me. But um, it seems well accepted, but it doesn't make it, it's still nefarious, and it's still deeply troubling, and the everyday layperson still has no idea he can be involved in research without his permission. And these are the kind of issues that face us now. Um, interestingly, the dispensation with informed um, consent, you would think that that would affect everybody, right? And it does, in theory. But in reality, I looked at one of the 25 studies conducted without informed consent, and I found that, in, at least in the one that I looked at, African Americans and other minority members were more likely to be involved in the research um, because they live in the kind of communities that medical researchers have uh, traditionally turned to for subjects. Mm. And so you mentioned the issue of going to sort of co to countries that are part of the global south um, to conduct medical research in a way that isn't necessarily up to the standard of conducting medical research here in the United States or say in Europe. Um, do you have any examples um, that you care to expound upon? They're not the standards. I mean, there are different standards governing research in these countries by um, Western researchers. The Declaration of Helsinki governed it. Mm -hmm. Declaration of Helsinki was changed in 2002 in a manner that diluted protections for people in the developing world. For example, um, placebo studies are permitted in these, in these countries and studies in which there is a no-treatment arm permitted because the wording used to be that one had to offer every subject a standard of care which is true here in the U.S., in Connecticut. But the wording was changed to say that you now have to offer the subject the standard of care in his country, which often is nothing. Mm -hmm. So you don't have to have a treatment arms. You can have studies in which people who are suffering or at risk for a grievous disease are offered no treatment at all for the sake of the research. And um, there, are two, there are far too many examples of this kind of research abuses. For example... In Kano, Nigeria, 
Pfizer tested um, a new drug called Trovan. And in the midst of a meningitis epidemic, Pfizer doctors flew in at the height of the epidemic and set up their tent right next to the Pfizer tent. I mean, right next to the Doctors Without Borders tent. People in the area who were desperately ill, who were desperately worried about their children's lives, flocked there and did not really understand the distinction necessarily between the Pfizer tent, which was experimental, and the Doctors Without Borders, which was treatment. And the children who were treated with the experimental Pfizer drug, some of them had grievous side effects. Some died, their loss of hearing, and the parents sued them in Nigeria, got no satisfaction, flew to Manhattan, sued Pfizer again, and finally were able to um, get a settlement after it emerged that a doctor had falsified consent forms. Yes, he had produced the consent forms that were falsified. Also, a letter that was required by law from the hospital giving permission for the researchers turns out to have been written after the fact, not beforehand. Mm. So these egregious kind of um, abuses and violations of the law um, are things that can take place on foreign lands conducted by U.S. researchers. With There's not the oversight that you have here, which is not strong enough here, but it's virtually lacking in the developing world. So, I mean, and there have been a slew of other studies. There have been subclinical doses um, of HIV medications for women in West Africa. Um, And there have been testing of thalidomide in Brazil, Nigeria. Mm -hmm. The infamous teratogen from the 1960s that we thought we would never see again. Well, now they're children with focomilia in the the horrible side effects from thalidomide because... um, the drug was being tested in West Africa, where they have no history with the drug. And people did not understand. Um, I had mentioned earlier that some of the early promotional materials for the West African trials indicated that there were no side effects to it. When in reality, of course, we know that the world was horrified to see that the, the horrible side effects like missing limb, limbs it caused in children. So um, then, of course, there are also the research One thing that's going on that I find even more troubling are research protocols carried out under the guise of research but are actually constitute medical torture. And a really good example of that happened in South Africa under apartheid. South African apartheid government actually had a separate um, division, Chemical and Biological Weapons Unit, and they were actively looking for agents that would preferentially harm African Americans. They were looking, for example, for a, a sterilization drug that would only work on black people. It was, and um, Wouter Bassan, who headed the unit, was tried but exonerated by a judge who was widely held to be an apartheid holdover. He was censured by his own medical group in South Africa. But, you know, it was well known throughout the continent that his people were not only doing things like dropping poison t-shirts in the homelands, but also using drugs like um, ecstasy and mandrate infiltrating, um, you know, the black people who lived in the area, um, giving them these drugs surreptitiously. Now, it sounds like science fiction, but the problem is that, you know, this program harmed many more people than um, Busan's group was actually able to um, directly affect because the word spread out throughout Africa. And when well-intentioned, 
beneficent groups like Doctors Without Borders would try to conduct vaccination campaigns, mm -hmm. people would be afraid of the vaccinations. Of course. they were. Yeah, they'd be afraid. Maybe this is a sterilization agent in disguise. Um, so, and then they were like, why they decried this paranoia? But it's not paranoia. I mean, that was a well-founded fear on mm -hmm. their part. So it's deeply troubling that we have these inequities in medical research that are being conducted in the developing world by Western researchers. Mm. Yeah, that's uh, that kind of that's jarring. And you know, I'm from Cameroon myself, so <laughs> I'm just mm -hmm. thinking about like what the role of the medicine that I'm learning to practice here um, overall can have in um, communities that I also you know come from. Um, and so where, as a historian and as someone who has long studied patterns of how these things repeat themselves and show up again and again, where do we go from here? What do you think? I think there are a lot of things that we can and should do. And one of these, as I had mentioned to you earlier, is to understand, acknowledge the fact that scientists and um, researchers have a set of mythologies they subscribe to that are not supported by the facts, Mm -hmm. but influence the way they conduct research and um, practice medicine. And I think it's really important for us to identify those and root them out in medical training. They become often a tacit part of medical training where they may not be codified in the literature or in the textbooks, but if you observe your professor giving um, African Americans less pain medication and dismissing their complaints of pain as um, drug-seeking, mm -hmm. you're more likely to do that yourself. It's something that you're being trained to do. And we also have a serious problem, I believe, with commodification of medicine. We have changed from the point in, before 1980, we had a situation where medical researchers and universities were driven by public needs. They wanted to, see, they saw themselves as benefactors, for example. And um, they competed on an intellectual basis. They were trying to devise treatments for things that concern people. Um, polio, for example, uh, curing cancers, things like that. Today, the, it's, the impetus is not that. It's driven by companies, pharmaceutical companies, who are trying to maximize the profit on a patent. And that doesn't mean necessarily going after cancers and things that um, concern most lay people. It means devising the 25th erectile dysfunction drug <laughs> or another or a medication against um, heartburn. You know, instead of advising people not to eat the way they eat or to exercise more or change their lifestyle, if you market another pill, you're assured of a wide audience. It applies to almost everybody is a, has an indication for that. So um, basically this profit motive is out of control. It's driving a lot of the erosion of informed consent because it's a, in order to avoid the costly, lengthy process of getting informed consent, uh, will maximize um, the company's profits. So we need to reverse this uh, commodification, and the best way of doing that, in my opinion, would be to reverse laws like the Bay-Dole Act, which was passed in 1980 and first gave these corporations access to patents on modalities developed in universities. Before then, they couldn't like buy or license a patent from it. Now they can. 
And um, I'd like to return the control of medical research to the physicians and the researchers and put the patient, not the patent, at the, at the center of medical research. That will take us a long way to ameliorating the more recent problems that we're facing. Mm. Well, thank you so much. And it's been a pleasure learning from your experience. And I hope to have you back on the pod for further discussion. I'd love that, Max. Thanks, everyone, for listening. And stay tuned for the next episode of Flip the Script.